0: So this morning, uh, I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're going to be at verses 46 through 54, and there is a Bible app event for this. You can follow along that way if you would like to. This is the story, a Bible story of Jesus healing a royal official's son. And uh, we've been doing Bible stories. Uh, this story has something in it that I find quite puzzling. That's what I'm going to share with you today number of you have said to me uh, people online have said this and others uh pastor steve when we watch your bible stories we hear things we never thought of before we never heard of before i can remember dr sovine when he was teaching us to preach he said if you come up with an idea nobody else had just forget it because you're not that creative and uh, that's true but really the reason you're hearing things you haven't heard of before is because when i'm reading these stories i'm thinking about what is the question i always wanted to ask but no one ever gave me the answer and that's what I'm doing this morning. We're going to look at a phrase or a sentence that Jesus says and say, well, what is that doing there? And that kind of brings out some of the story that you might have never, never gotten before. Before we dig into the Word, I, I'm going to tell you about an invitation I received uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I've received an invitation on um, June 12th at 1 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time uh, to go to the sixth uh, annual barbecue of the New Mexico Reptiles, Amphibians, and Herps group on Facebook. And you're thinking, why did you get that invitation? Because I belong to that group. And you're thinking, why do you belong to that group? And it's not because I'm like my friend James, who likes those things. I don't like those things. In fact, if at the barbecue they were going to eat those things, that would be fine with me. But I joined that group because sometimes I'm in Albuquerque. My son lives there. And I just want to know what to watch out for. What do I need to watch out for when I'm on a hike in the desert? And uh, That's why I'm in that group. Yeah, I wonder, are they barbecuing the reptiles? I doubt that they are. I don't think they would do that, right? Uh, You know, um, it's kind of interesting. Facebook invitations are becoming more and more mainstream, and more and more stubbornly, I resist them when that happens. Um, But how do you invite somebody to something you have going? You know, there's not a lot of things you get invitations in the mail for anymore. A, A wedding invitation, you'll get one of those in the mail. Um, or someone might give you an invitation to lunch. I got an invitation to coffee this week from someone. It was one word. It was a text. Coffee. That was an invitation that I got this week. And there's that other invitation, the invitation to follow Christ. That's a pretty important invitation, isn't it? Um, some refer to that invitation at times as an altar call. altar call. Are you familiar with that? The term altar call, it's really only 100 years old, so 1900 years of Christendom existed before we started using the altar call and the word that goes with it. But the idea may have begun with a guy named George Whitefield, uh, who lived in the 1700s. <coughs> he was a preacher and a well-known preacher and writer. He had a sermon that he preached over and over again. And you're thinking, that's just like our pastor over and over again, right? Uh, uh, this sermon, though, he traveled, so he would preach it to different people at different times in different locations. And the name of the sermon was from Isaiah 54-5. The name of it was this. Listen to this. Yeah, some of you are like, what's wrong with his eyes? He's cross-eyed. Okay. And the artist was honest and put that there. So, uh, but the name of the sermon that he preached was, um, thy maker is thy husband, which is what it says in Isaiah 54-5. And it's a conclusion of that sermon. Whitfield could then say, I want to invite you to come to the front of this church and you can marry the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you take Christ as your. And he would, you know, he could do that if he wanted to do that. They didn't call it an altar call, but what it was was an invitation. You're invited to follow Christ. A century later in the 1800s, another gentleman named Charles Finney had what he called an anxious bench. I got to ask you, how many of you know what I mean when I say the anxious bench? Not one. That's great. Good. Let me tell you about it. Okay? It's going to take both hands. Okay? So here's what he did. Finney, here's what Finney did. He, in the church, he would take some of these chairs or a pew and he put them maybe right there or he might put them back right in front of the choir loft or wherever. And he would say at the start of the ceremony, those of you who have not made a decision for Christ, come at this time and you can sit here on the anxious bench and pray as I preach. And there are people there that will pray with you if you would like. And believe it or not, in the 1800s, people got up. Let's do that right now. Those of you, how would that work today, right? But people would get up, and then he would preach a hellfire and brimstone sermon, I guess, and uh, a lot of people were converted in the anxious bench. Isn't that odd? They didn't call it an altar call. They called it an invitation. It was different than Whitfield ever imagined. It was what Finney did. In the early 1900s, there was a national League baseball player named Billy Sunday, who used a different technique. Billy Sunday, he was pretty, uh, energetic. Uh, he would, uh, he would slide across the stage like he's sliding into home plate, you know, and, and do all kinds of things like that. He preached a lot of times in canvas tents that they sent up, and they had chairs like this in them. And I don't know if you've ever been out in a field, like at a festival or something, and the ground is a little bit wet and you and a million other people are walking on it, and it just becomes nothing but mud, right? It becomes kind of like the barnyard almost. It doesn't smell that bad, hopefully, but it looks that bad. Well, in order to deal with that, what they did is they laid sawdust between the pews, between the rows, so people could walk and it wouldn't get all muddy like that. He would give the message about how you need to receive Christ and follow after him, and then he would invite them. I love this word, don't you? Listen to this, this phrase. I invite you this morning to walk the sawdust trail. Isn't that cool? That is just really cool. It wasn't an altar call. He didn't call it that. And it was different than what Finney was doing. But it was an invitation. Uh, The grandest of them all in my estimation, Billy Graham. Billy Graham, (laughs) he would gather people into stadiums. He would tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he would have the music play. Just as I am, without one plea, but that Thy blood was shed for me, and as I bid, as Thou bidst me, come to Thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Even with this. Bad voice. It makes you want to stand up and come down right now, doesn't it? What a great song that he had for that. And he would say to them, I want to see you in the stands do what we have seen people do in stadiums on all the continents. I want to see you get up out of your seat and come down onto this stadium floor. Don't worry about those who are with you. Your friends will wait. You come. It wasn't an altar call. There was no altar there. It was a invitation. And it was different than the one before it, which was different than the one before it, that was different from the one before it. You know, you don't see many altar calls these days, and I'm okay with that. I seldom issue that kind of invitation for a number of reasons. I can just tell you kind of quickly what they are, because you may have wondered. I've found some view it from a heretical viewpoint. Let me explain what I mean. Some people, as the altar call was very popular, and you were to come forward and kneel at the altar and pray with the pastor, they felt like that was the way you were saved. And that's the only way you were saved. And if you think, I don't believe that, Pastor Steve. Well, I led a a gentleman to Christ in the intensive care unit. He prayed out loud to receive Christ as his Savior. And he did. And he felt good about it. And he got better and he came home. And one of his family members said, you can't be saved unless you go to the altar and your pastor prays for you. You know what the name for that is? False teaching, heresy, name it what you want. That's just plain wrong. Yeah, (laughs) Similarly, I found people who walked down the aisle but by all appearances never walked with Christ after that. Have you seen them? I know you have. It's true, you see that. They felt safe. Yeah, I, I, I answered the altar call at can't. I'm good to go. Third, I found, I say this carefully, that many who most objected to the lack of altar calls these days were often people who I cautiously suspected did not have a real encounter with Jesus. They'd just gone through the motions. Just gone through the motions. And the altar call was one of the motions they went through. They walked the sawdust trail, but they didn't walk after the one who said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting to see how Jesus issues invitations. One time he does it this way he says, Come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. That was an invitation. Another time he did it like this Take up your cross. Let's go. Another time, he issued the invitation saying, Come to me, and I will give you rest. Invitations. See if you can find the one in our passage today. We're going to start at verse 46, and we're going to read through verse 54. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When the man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, He went and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when the son got better, they said to him, yesterday. At one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. As we prepare for communion, I really want you to focus on that verse 48. It's on the screen. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. And a question I ask myself when I read this story is, why would Jesus make that point? Why does he say that when he says it? Because honestly, it seems kind of random to me. I mean, Jesus arrives in Cana in Galilee. An unidentified royal official hears that Jesus is there and goes to see him with a need. It's a heartfelt need. His son is close to death. And out of the blue, in the middle of that conversation, Jesus says, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. And in the end, the man persists, and Jesus healed his son. That man had faith. He believed. So why did Jesus look at him and say before all the people, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Hmm. You know, even though the text says the man told this to Jesus... I have a feeling that Jesus is speaking this for everyone to hear, everyone to hear. And so he's talking to this man, and you notice he says, you people. He doesn't say you individually. And so maybe he's talking to everyone in within earshot. I think he's actually issuing an invitation. Although these people were in the know, none of them is coming to see Jesus. I mean, Jesus had turned the water into wine in their town just shortly before this, and and it's a pretty small town. It's such a small town, we think we know where it was, but we're not even sure because there's so little of it left. So it's just a little small community where he turned the water into wine. And granted, they weren't all at the wedding, but in a small town like that, someone does a miracle like that, you're going to hear about it. And in verse 46, the Bible goes to the trouble to say, this is the place that he did this. Verse 46 says, he visited Cana and Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. So maybe the people who were there when this Roman official shows up, maybe, maybe they were there because they were curious. Hey, let's see if this guy does another cool trick. But there's really no evidence that any of them were bringing their need to Jesus, bringing their hearts to Jesus, except one man. And of all the people to see Jesus and and to bring him this, to see him as more than a, a sideshow, it's actually an outsider who comes to Jesus. At least we assume he's an outsider. He's a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. As near as we can tell, that's about a day's walk away from Cana. So he put some tread on his sandals. Royal official. He's probably a wealthy aristocrat, maybe who bought his position. And it's very unlikely that he's religious at all by Jewish standards. And yet it's him who when he hears Jesus is there, comes for help. Think about that. Let's just do a contrast real quick. On one hand, you have Jesus with Jewish people, his own people. Those Jewish people are religious people, okay? Those Jewish people are God's chosen people, okay? And when they heard, and and they have heard rather, that Jesus did a miracle just a short time earlier at a wedding. Some of them were actually there. Okay, but it's not them that are coming to Jesus for help. Contrast that on this side, we have the guy who's probably an irreligious man. He's probably a wealthy man. He very well could not even be a Jewish man. He may be a foreigner, a Gentile, not one of God's chosen people. And there's next to no chance that he would have been around when Jesus turned the water into wine. And yet he is the one who asks for help. I think we can pretty safely assume I think we can pretty safely assume that everyone in that gathering had a need everyone in that gathering had one Eric, I don't know if you noticed that you said it today but you quoted Jim Bell who every Sunday when he prayed at Kermansville Alliance he said we are a needy people do you remember saying that? can you hear Jim Bell saying that if you've been around long enough? we are needy people but only one guy asked for help And as I think about this, I can't help but think about something I heard growing up in church over and over and over again. And that something is that Jesus wants us to bring him our needs. He desires that we do that. He is pleased that this man comes. He helps this man. He honors the request. Jesus wants us to bring him our needs. I never thought about this before, but this week I was kind of wondering, why? Why is it that Jesus wants us to Bring him our needs. And there are many answers to that, but I think one of the really important answers is this, because when we bring our needs, we bring our hearts. Hear that again. When you bring your need, you bring your heart. Every physician knows this. (laughs) A patient can unintentionally and innocently develop feelings, warm feelings, toward their doctor. I was talking with Laurel about this the other day, and I said to her, you know... (laughs) When I had that guy who was freezing the precancerous things off my hand, I felt kind of a warm feeling toward him like, like, I, like I do my dad. That's just weird. He's kind of my age. And yet I just had this feeling when he would make me well. A warm feeling like, I love you like my dad, buddy. My heart. Laurel said, same thing with me. She'd had surgery done on her shoulder. It was unsuccessful, consistently becoming dislocated. And finally, we found a physician in Pittsburgh who did a surgery that probably hadn't been done in America before. It was a brand new thing. It was a Swiss thing. And he went in there with his Swiss Army knife. And he... And he just making sure you're paying attention. And he, and, he, and he fixed it. And Laurel said, I had feelings like that toward him. Now, there are a lot of reasons this happens. But one obvious reason is this. We had something troubling us. We took that something that problem, to someone. We trusted them. They heard us and they helped us. And our need, combined with the doctor's skill, created a sense of connection. Every doctor knows it. Do you see this principle at work in Jesus' ministry? (laughs) He knows when we bring our needs, we bring our hearts. And frankly, he's not interested in curious people who kind of like to see him turn water into wine but he's really interested in desperate people who will bring their hearts and say help me help me he's interested in connecting himself with yourself now to kind of get your head around this it would be a good idea for us to revisit our understanding of faith and develop a maybe a biblical understanding of belief As a young Christian, I had a lot of flawed ideas. (laughs) One of them was regarding this issue of, of faith and belief. What is it? First, I want to say to you, belief is not something that you manufacture. Belief is not something that you psych yourself up for or psych yourself into. I have friends who think that belief is a matter of mentally blocking out every question. The belief is mentally not affording yourself the even thought that this might not happen. And blocking out any suggestion of loss or any negative thought that comes to your mind, block that out. And when they hear the doctor, these are my friends, when they hear the doctor say cancer, they refuse to believe it. I will not hear that. I will not believe that. I reject this diagnosis in the name of Jesus and I will never speak that again. Don't speak that over my my husband or my wife. I reject everything associated with it. I, I have a friend, a woman I know, who wouldn't even speak the C word, she called it, regarding her husband's diagnosis, because she felt doing so was to indicate disbelief. And it showed that she had a lack of faith. And she constantly psyched herself into believing, God will heal, God will heal, God will heal my husband, God will heal my husband. And, and, and it was very stressful for her, just trying to keep her brain going that direction. And that isn't biblical faith. And sadly, things did not end the way that she hoped they would end. Biblical faith is not using some kind of self-discipline, mental discipline, to close your mind to uncertainty. It is not a mentality of blocking out and eliminating any trace of doubt. If that is what biblical faith was, then there would only be very few people who could conjure that in their being, and the rest of us would be lost, hopeless. Second, belief is not something I manufacture, it's not something I psych myself into, And it's not a leap of faith. The phrase leap of faith is often credited to a Danish guy born a couple hundred years ago named Soren Kierkegaard. In 26 publications, he never really said it. But he gets blamed for it all the time, right? Leap of faith. A leap of faith is when you say, this makes no sense at all, but I'm going to jump, right? Oh, wow. Wow, that is not biblical faith. Because biblical faith invites exploration and investigation. Because it can stand up to it. The gospel of Christ does not need to defend it you defend it just like you would a lion, let it loose, right? Don't have to worry about that. Wiser, more intelligent people than you and I have investigated it and found it sensible and stable. It stands the test of time because it does not fly in the face of the questions that you and I might have about it. It does not die, rather, in the face of those questions. It it stands. It stands. Biblical faith is not, yeah, biblical belief is not a leap of faith. Third, biblical faith is not just nodding your head. And this is really important because I think some people think it's just nodding your head. Like, do you believe Jesus died for your sins? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, Whoa, brother, you're safe. Good, I'm glad. I'm glad you got that. It's not just saying, yeah, okay, that works for me. Next, right? I can't pronounce this guy's name. I don't really know who he is. He's Dr. Mark Taichin. Wow. His quote's so good, I put it on the screen. I'll read that. The central obligation of Christian existence is, is not to affirm the existence of God, but to love God. can't tell you how many people I've heard, when they're talking about their loved one, they'll say, well, he believes God God exists. He's okay. (laughs) That's not what we're looking for here. Biblical faith isn't just for you to nod your head. Yeah, okay, I believe that. Whatever. Let's go. While Christian faith does include agreement with specific doctrines or specific teachings and truths from Scripture, it is not just signing a doctrinal statement put out by your church. In short... Biblical belief is a choice to trust. It's your choice to trust. And that's exactly what the royal official brought to Jesus. Verse 49, sir, come down to my come down before my child dies. He's desperate. His son's going to die. But he trusts Jesus. Verse 50, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. So this guy, he didn't have to take some kind of a, a spiritual yardstick out and measure the depth of his faith, and say, do I have enough here? Right? He didn't have to run some diagnostics just to make sure that he had proper horsepower in his ability to believe. He, he, he doesn't ask the question, but am I believing hard enough? That, that's because the question isn't, am I believing hard enough? The question is, "Why trust? Will I trust this man to whom I have brought my heart? Will I trust this Jesus to whom I have brought my son. And when he made that decision to trust Jesus with his son and with his heart, he could walk away. And he could walk back to his home. Theologian Wayne Grudem in his book, Systematic Theology, is talking about faith. He's speaking specifically about saving faith. Listen to what he says. Listen to what he says. Because saving faith in Scripture involves personal trust... The word "trust" is a better word to use in contemporary culture than the word "faith" or "believe." You can say that not just about saving faith, you can say that about all faith. It's a matter of trust. And this is incredibly important because when we begin to see that Jesus' desire for us to believe in him, when we begin to, didn't, <laughs> say it again when we begin to see Jesus' desire for us to believe in him as an invitation to trust him, everything changes. Everything changes. So when you come to communion, when you come to an invitation, Jesus invites you to trust him. He's not asking you to cook up some positive thinking in your life. He's not asking you to scrunch up your face real hard and say, I'm trying to push away the clouds of doubt with all my heart, Jesus. I'm working on it. I'm trying. He is inviting you to trust him. Simpson said it this way. Once it was a blessing, now it is the Lord. Once the gift I wanted, now I own the giver. Let me talk about that a little more. He's inviting you to trust him. He invites you to trust him. Because if you haven't got it by now, he wants your heart. So I'm going to say this, and you may or may not get it. You might even be troubled that I'm saying it. But I think it's really important for you to consider. Jesus does miracles... To connect your heart with his heart. He wants you to pray regarding your parenting. That you can become a better parent. He wants you to pray regarding healing if you're sick or a loved one is sick. He wants you to pray for the right job. That you have the right vocation in your life. But he's more interested in hearing your voice than he is in helping you with your parenting. He is more interested, desirous of connecting with you and your heart than he is with healing your body. He is more focused on mingling his spirit with you and with your spirit than he is in finding you a job. And as we prepare for communion, know this that he is here to love you and be loved by you, he loves you deeply. And you give him your heart when you show him your need. And as he touches your heart, he meets that need. Do you see how much different this is than a lot of teaching on what faith is? He invites you to believe. Trust me, he says, because he wants your heart. He invites you to believe, to trust him, because really it's the only way to live. I mean, a lot of people live without ever trusting Jesus. They don't care. They don't live... And and they might say, I live my life. I'm okay without him. But really, the only way to live a fulfilled life that your creator has for you to live is to trust your creator. That's the only way to live. He invites you to come to him when you labor and are heavy laden. Trust him. He invites you to trust him because he has what it takes to take care of your anxieties. Trust him. He invites you to cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. Trust him. You respond to that invitation by genuinely desiring his help. And in this context, you bring your need to him knowing he wants you to do that because he wants to show you his heart and his love. And you bring your need and you see yourself genuinely desiring him. Some of you probably have heard of Pastor John Piper. He's a pastor and author in uh, our day. He wrote a very short book. He wrote it in one evening, a very short book called, listen to this title, Don't Waste Your Cancer. Did you hear that? Don't Waste Your Cancer. (laughs) He didn't know when he wrote that book with the future. He was scheduled for surgery the next morning. Did he have faith that they would get all the surgery? I I think that Pastor John would say no. I didn't know for sure that they were going to get all the surgery, but I trusted God. Listen to some of the preface from his book, and you'll see why I say that. I originally wrote this on the eve of prostate cancer surgery. I believe then and I believe now in God's power to heal by miracle or by medicine. I believe it is right and good to pray for both kinds of healing. Cancer is not wasted when it is healed by God. He gets the glory, and that's why cancer exists. So not to pray for healing may waste our cancer. Hear what he's saying. He's saying, I believe in healing. I'm trusting God. I brought this need to God. He goes on later in the preface and he says, at this time, five years after my surgery, the evidence is that they, quote, got it. But I've learned that one day we may think we are well and the next day find out we are not. So now, when people ask me, how's your health? I say, I feel fine. And the doctors are pleased. Which translated means, I don't know how I am, but God knows but God knows. Now listen to this last sentence. It's very short, but it's so good. Listen to these words. That God knows and cares and rules is enough. I trust him. I trust him. When Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. He's inviting them to believe. He's not interested in turning water into wine again. He's not operating a sideshow at a county fair. He's interested in connecting with them at a deep level, at the level of their real needs. He's interested in connecting with you and me in the same manner. Are you trusting him? What is it that you need to be trusting him with? Let me say that sentence again. What is it that you have in your life that you know you need to be trusting God with? Is it forgiveness? Do you need to trust him for your place in eternity? That's really where it begins, right? Trusting the one who died for you. Peter said that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. Jesus died in your place. He invites you to be forgiven for your sin and to have eternal life in him. I invite you. I invite you to walk the sawdust trail. I invite you to open your heart and say to Jesus, I trust you and to follow him with all your heart. And you can do that on a sawdust trail. You can do that on an anxious bench. You can do that in an intensive care unit. You can do that right here and right now. Yes, Jesus, I trust you. What else do you need to trust him with? Do you need to trust him with your family? You got stuff going on in your family? He says, Trust me. Your parents? Children? Your spouse? Jesus invites you to bring your deep need to his heart and trust him in his heart. What about the future? You graduating? Man, when I was a senior, I got so sick of hearing people say, What are you doing when you graduate? You know? (laughs) Getting as far away from you as I can. (laughs) Even if you know what you're doing when you're graduating, one of the graduates said it so well just pray that I'm making the right decision. I'll know you can trust him. You can trust him. What about the economy? Gas is $4.50 a gallon more than it was when I was a kid. 32 cents I paid for gas for my motorcycle when I was a kid. My mom made me pay. You know why? She's born in Scotland. (laughs) They're careful with their money over there. Well, she was anyway. What about these economic shifts? What about the future? Trust him. Take your deep needs to his deep heart. And sense his love. Sense his nearness. As we prepare for communion, I want to pray that you could do that. If you're comfortable doing so, as the worship team comes, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we'll pray, and then we'll celebrate communion together. Please stand. This is a time that one examines oneself, and so as we pray, take that moment to examine your own heart before God. Father in heaven, as we are standing here before you as a group of believers, we trust you. And perhaps there are some here that walked the Sawdust Trail but didn't realize it's just a matter of trust. Maybe for the first time, their their eternal destiny is something they're placing in your hands, trusting you, and not something that they did one time. I did this thing one time. All they did, they need to do, is to trust you. And as they trust you, Father, show them the depth of your warm love by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. I think two of others, we have different things on our mind, different things on our heart that need our attention. And... And uh, they can be overwhelming, fill us with anxiety and worry, and and they want to point us toward despair. We will not allow that to happen. Not by some vanquishing of negative thoughts, but simply by trusting you. Thank you, God. We trust you, God. I pray that that would be the way we live our lives, and even as we take communion this morning, the bread and the cup, that we would that we would have a sense that these elements. Remind us of your great love and your trustworthiness. For it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is for you. And afterward, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the New Testament and my blood. Drink this for as often as you drink it. You proclaim my Lord, the Lord's death. We're going to uh, take the bread in just a moment, but before we do, one of our elders, Eric, is going to pray a prayer of thanks for the body of Christ, and then we'll take it together. Eric?
1: Lamb of God, we come. Lord, we thank you that we can worship you in this way. We thank you for the symbolism of your body that was beaten and bloodied for us. Lord, we trust you. We trust you for what has happened, what is here, and what is yet to come. We trust you in all things, that we may honor and glorify you in the way we act and lead our life. We ask you to lead it, Lord. We praise you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: The body of Christ. When I said the body of Christ, I held it up and I took it. You all did the same thing. It was a choice you made a long time ago to take the body of Christ. Trusting him is the same kind of thing. You simply make the decision. I will do this. I will trust him. And you rest in that decision. Afterward, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is a new covenant. It represents a new covenant which is in my blood, which is shed out for you, which is poured out for you. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. But because of the shedding of Christ's blood, we can trust that our sins are forgiven. We're going to ask one of the elders, Josh, if he would pray a prayer of thanks for the blood of Christ. And we'll take it together. Josh?
1: It is overwhelming to think that you joyfully marched the cross, (laughs) that's what your word says, the joy set before you, you endured it, that you looked ahead as well as behind, and you had me on your mind when you made that walk, you had Ed on your mind when you made that walk that you had jostling on your mind when you made that walk and carry each of us? How can we not trust you? That if we fully grasp the magnitude of your decision to be obedient to the will of the Father, how can we not As the woman who bled for years, as Mark recorded it, how can we not just push our way through the crowd just to touch your cloak? God, may we have the faith to take the risk and just trust you. Because you are there. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen.
0: Hold on to your cup. This is what I've been saying to you all morning. Once it was a blessing, now it is the Lord. Once it was a feeling, now it is his word. Once his gifts I wanted, now the giver own. Once I sought for healing, now himself alone. Once was painful trying, now perfect trust. Once a half salvation, now the uttermost. Once t'was ceaseless holding, now he holds me fast. Once was constant drifting. Now my anchors cast. Once it was my working. Now it, hence, it his shall be. Once I tried to use him. Now he uses me. Once the power I wanted. Now the mighty one. Once for self I labored. Now for him alone. Once I hoped in Jesus. Now I know he's mine. Once my lamps were dying, now they brightly shine. Once for death I waited, now his coming hail, and my hopes are anchored safe within the veil. The blood of Christ. So a number of years ago, our district superintendent's name was Palmer Zerby. And uh, he asked his secretary, who was a deeply committed Christian woman, to type up the words of this hymn we're about to sing. And uh, she'd never heard it before. This was written by Dr. Simpson, the founder of the Alliance. And when she was done, she came in and handed him the paper with tears in her eyes and said, this, this is it. This is kind of what I've been talking about throughout this whole service. It's not the blessing, it's the Lord. He gives you the blessing so you can have him.